welcome back to another Ag Watchers. We've got another special guest in from New York. We've got Chris Lawson, head of fertilizers for CRU. Chris, welcome back. Probably our most regular guest. Hello, guys. Great to be back again. Uh, and yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. In his in his hospital bed as he's broken his leg. <laughs> so. Yeah, not quite a break, but uh, a bit of an injury during the week, but uh, onwards and upwards. That's why you shouldn't play sports at your age, Chris. Yeah, that's what my wife says to me. The current wife says, um, you know, whenever I do something silly, she always says, have you checked your birth certificate? See how old you are. <laughs> so maybe you should have done the same, Chris. Yes. No, according to my my mum, my, my dear mother, she said, well, you were never very good at basketball anyway, so I'm not sure why you were playing it. So... Especially um, in America, yeah. where they're actually good at basketball in America. Yes, it's true. true. <laughs> the, uh, so before we get you back on, it's been a while. Uh, it's probably not much has happened in fertilizer in the last couple of months. But before we get you on anyway, to talk about what's happening in the fertilizer market. So I guess the first place to start is Russia. We've had the invasion of Ukraine. We've had all these sanctions uh, and we've also had the price of oil and gas increase. So what's, how, is it impacting on the fertilizer market? Yeah, it's been a fairly crazy couple of months. I think it's fair to say, Andrew, uh, we have probably never been busier as, as a bunch of fertilizer analysts and never had as much interest in, in the work that we do. We're having lots of conversations with lots of different stakeholders uh, around the world of, of what uh, what these uh, sanctions on Russia mean, what all these different supply disruptions mean for, for the fertiliser market, what it means for agricultural and, and global food supply generally. So uh, it's been incredibly interesting. Um, and, yeah, as you say, you know, sanctions on, on Russia, the fallout from that has uh, certainly wreaked havoc in the fertiliser market. Uh, and uh, we have seen record high prices at, at COU. We, we collect a fertilizer price index, basically a basket of all the different weekly price assessments that we have. Um, and that breached its its record uh, around three or four weeks ago now. Um, so much higher than the 2008 uh, record that was set uh, when when that big boom happened, back, the big commodity boom happened then. So we, well, we easily surpassed that. Is that a, is um, that a, is that a nominal record? A nominal record, yes. Yeah. So it's still not as high as the 1970s, so is it? Uh, our index doesn't go back that far. Um, it would be some interesting analysis to do, but we just don't have the data going back that far to, to do that, unfortunately. Chris, are there, are there specific um, parts of the fertiliser market that Russia are particularly important for? Like, as in, yeah, I think ammonium nitrate is one of the big ones from memory, but are, they, are there kind of certain segments that they're really important globally and, and some that are less so? They're important in all of it, to be honest, Matt. They they are incredibly important and low-cost producers of nitrogen. They've got ample and, and cheap gas, so that means they can produce nitrogen fertilisers cheaply, so that's urea, ammonium nitrate, and, and UAN. Uh, they've got some very high-quality phosphate rock reserves, so they're important DAP and MAP producers. Um, and they've also got an awful lot of potash uh, there. So uh, they, again, produce potash very, very cheaply uh, and uh, an increasing amount of it as well. For, for potash, they're around 20% uh, of traded supply. Uh, and potash has actually been the, the market that we've been probably getting the most questions on because it's a very, very concentrated market. And think about Russia being 20% of supply. Belarus, which is been sanctioned for almost the last year now hmm. is also about 20% of the market. And then, so then the, rest got, of it's, the rest of it's Canada? Uh, essentially Canada. You've got a, a little bit in, in Israel and, and Jordan and places like that. But yeah, it's a very concentrated market. So I guess what does it mean for, for, for the Australian? Obviously, we're fairly Australian-centric. We, I wouldn't imagine we don't get much fertilizer from Russia, but what's the impact on, on Australian farmers? Just the flow-on effect? Yeah, it's a flow-on effect because the, the global disruptions this has for, for trade are, are pretty huge. Um, so, yeah, there's, 
there's the usual customers of Belarus and, and Russia, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to find uh, supply from from elsewhere, essentially. So that that means that trade flows. So just, just pretty much the same as what happened in China, where when China was taken off the market last September, is it just causes everyone else to look for the same same volume, but from a smaller supply pool, basically. Yeah, precisely, precisely. And I think. You know, there's there's lots of lessons to be learned from uh, the China situation. Again, it's a very different situation. Mm. Uh, whereas you know China was it was a government intervention to protect their own domestic market. With what's happening with Russia right now, it's a uh, it's international intervention against the atrocities that are being committed in in Ukraine. Um, now, what's what's really interesting is you know we we've had podcasts that have discussed this China situation you know, around six months ago. There have still been exports trickling out of China, so they haven't completely dried up, which was which is but, pretty but, much but, in line with our expectations. But nowhere near the volumes they would typically do, though. Nowhere near the volumes that they would typically do, and nowhere near the the volumes that they're kind of incentivized to produce and export right now. Now, what's what's really interesting with Russia at the moment is we think when we look at all the different sanctions. And we look at the companies that are being sanctioned and the individuals that have been sanctioned. Fertilizers is is partly impacted by it. So no no fertilizer company is actually included in the sanctions. And fertilizer as a commodity, for the most part, has been carved out of many of the sanctions. Hmm. Now some of the uh, different owners uh, or large shareholders of these different Russian fertilizer companies have been sanctioned. Um, so. And that's by mainly by the EU and the UK. Now, over the past probably five to six weeks, when those sanctions were announced, those companies have been changing their ownership structures, yeah. and we haven't seen a complete halt of exports out of Russia. We we do still see some urea trickling out of there. We still see some potash moving out of there. We're still seeing some phosphate deals being done. So again, the volumes are much smaller than what they would normally be and much smaller than what the the market incentive is so uh, so, so, so is, the they're not they're not completely so, ground to a halt. so is it slightly more than so instead of the sanctions not really the sanctions necessarily it's the biggest impact it's i guess is it more the gas price rising that's impacting the global fertilizer more than the actual sanctions we've seen gas prices they sort of sl- started sliding down at the end of last year but now they've propped back up almost immediately as the conflict started is that a yeah. bigger driver? It, it is a big driver, yes. Um, and you know, when we, we look at European gas prices particularly, uh, European gas prices, uh, compare European gas prices to US gas prices, there is a huge, huge gap mm. between them. So if Europe has to pay very, very high gas prices and that's what its nitrogen uh, producers are, are kind of having to pay to produce their, their nitrogen fertilisers, then their fertilizer prices need to respond for them to do that. And if those fertilizer prices don't respond, they will shut down, shut down their production unless there is some government support there. Now, there has this... been some suggestion of government support, um, but for the most part, fertilizer prices have risen to allow those European producers to uh, continue producing or if they have cut back to, to start to produce at more normal rates again. Chris, this is probably a bit of a tricky one because no one really knows how long this problem in Ukraine is going to last for and and then how long, you know, even if it stops kind of reasonably shortly, how, how long the sanctions and the and the impact that it's you know, played out on Russia is going to hang around and things aren't going to go back to normal just if Russia pull out is what I'm kind of saying. Um, but do you think now that all of this disruption to the fertiliser market and the energy markets is going to be something that's going to be around potentially for a much longer time than than what was expected prior? I know we had price rises prior to the invasion, um, but there was some kind of thought that, that you know, it, it, into sometime this year we might start to see prices easing, but it doesn't look like that's on the cards now for a significant period of time, assuming the situation stays as it is with this with this ongoing kind of um, conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, it's we're higher for longer is essentially how we're thinking about things, and that's across gas and and fertilizers. Um, now we may have already reached the peak in in some respect, but in terms of you know, are we going to see 
fertilizer and gas prices come down to their historical norms over the next couple of years, that's pretty unlikely. Um, we're going to be kind of well above those kind of mid-cycle averages for, for a while yet as all of this uh, plays out and, and washes out. So I guess that's the thing that, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day about it. There's, in, in Australia, there's obviously one of the big talking points at the moment from all of the state farming organisations, the government is about domestic supplies. And so there's all this talk about uh, the fertilizer plants in Lee Creek in South Australia. Mm. Uh, Strike Energy. Strike Energy in West Australia. The other one, I can't remember the name of, that got a couple hundred million. Perdiman. Uh, Perdiman. And there's a, there's a couple other ones actually as well in, in, the, in the sort of the processing. But I was sort of thinking, well, surely it's not just Australia who is thinking, oh, let's build more fertilizer facilities yeah do uh, do we run into the the issue which is not an issue for farmers where this starts to become in five six seven eight years time too much supply in the market again because we sort of saw that in the after 2008 when fertilizer prices spiked there was a whole bunch of new fertilizer plants that were sort of commissioned around the world and then we sort of seen that in the mid 2010s low prices for quite some time because there was a lot of supply is, is there a risk of an oversupply at the end of this decade as, as new plants come on, on track or are people a bit more wary now? It's a great question. I think... All my I questions mean, are great, Chris. Of course, of course, it goes without saying. Um, the, you're dead right. I mean, we only have to rewind back a couple of years ago when we first started talking fertilisers together and we were very much in the pit of the cycle. Uh, and no one had any interest in investing in fertilizer production capacity or, or very, very little mm. interest. In it. And that has turned around completely over these last couple of years. And we're seeing a, a large number of new project announcements and in very, very early stages you know, coming through over um, these past couple of months. Lots of projects which had completely lost momentum, starting to. Uh, come back from from the dead again so yeah th that is always a risk there and that's always a you know it's something that we're always factoring in within but, a but there is cycle. but there is other plants getting commissioned or, or planned in other parts of the world as well not just australia there is yeah yeah depending and, uh, on the, the different nutrients it's it's kind of spread across the world and when you look at australia you know, some of the numbers are talking it's probably about three to four million tons of of supply if if they all go ahead, which I think is still a big if, uh, and that's obviously way more than Australia requires. But it, and that's just my, my sort of concern is, you know, we saw the same with, in 2008, when we saw that spike, we saw the same with bulk freight. We saw everybody going out and buy, you know, bulk vessels because they thought this is the new norm. We're going to stay here forever. And and same with fertilizers. So I guess that is the... It, be interesting to see in, you know, the end of this decade, whether that does happen or whether do plants just not, get finished yeah you know. yeah i think there's a, there's, a, there's a few interesting elements that are, that are going to be different this time around compared to that 2008 boom which led to big investment in capacity and then those very low prices from 2015 to 2019 i think that the uh esg component of investment is a is a much bigger thing now and um you know, that can be an advantage or, or a disadvantage for um, these different projects. Uh, emissions particularly is, is very, very important. You look at lots of the, the, those nitrogen projects that are around it, there's a big focus on reducing the amount of carbon emissions that are associated with them. So that's going to be a, a bigger, bigger part of what projects are successful or not. Um, but also those gas market dynamics and whoever can get secure relatively cheap gas uh, is, you know, that that's really going to be the be all and end all for those nitrogen projects because we're seeing some completely and utterly wild gas markets at the moment yeah, and some huge differentials across um, different markets in the world. And, and that's really, yeah, where, where some of those competitive advantages are going to come from. Yeah, that was my that was my next question actually around the the input costs to the creation of the fertilizer because I know the 
discussion we had with the, I can't remember his name now, the CEO from Lee Creek, Andrew, he was saying how they've got the advantage of um, having a fairly low cost input price, you know, of the, of the gas coming in given their, their setup. But for some of these potential new um, operators that might be coming on or, or ones that are expanding their operation, if the, if the global gas price is still, or coal price in the case of China is still um, elevated, then that's not going to necessarily mean they're going to be able to, you know, swap the market with cheap fertiliser still, if, if, the, you know, if the costs are still expensive to produce it. Yeah, it really depends on the, the gas pricing mechanism which they uh, establish with their, their gas suppliers. And again, how that is structured is completely different around the world. You know, Europe and uh, US producers are typically paying market gas prices to produce their nitrogen. That's, that's not the same in Southeast Asia or not the same in South Asia or um, in the, uh, other parts of the world where they have a bit more uh, government support, I'd say. So it's a, it's a really, it's another kind of element and, and layer that needs to be considered when thinking about some of these projects. So good segue there. You mentioned government support, which we've, uh, we've seen some issues around fertilizer with government anti-support of fertilizer. Uh, with, with 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 Sri Lanka, you know they they've they've just came back from they've reversed the decisions. This time last year, they banned synthetic fertilizers and chemicals, and now they've they've come back to uh, reverse that decision. What 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 was what was your initial thinking when they came out with that ban on synthetic fertilizers? I remember seeing that headline and thinking this is not going to end very well. Um, and I think that's probably one of the best observations I've ever made to myself. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's ended terribly um, for them. And yeah, they're uh, trying to hurry back into the market now because they realize they've made a mistake. Uh, it was a very kind of quick decision to, to do it. This is, you know, you can't just change an agricultural system at the, the click of a government's fingers. Um, so, yeah, uh, the Sri Lanka itself is in uh, some very uh, fraught uh, economic turbulence right now. It's not just fertilizers, it's, it's their broader but economy, which is in a lot of trouble. But, yeah. but that's going to be a struggle with them for actually buying fertilizer. With their, it, yeah. with, with it, their, their currency is the worst performing currency of the world this year. Well, and their, reserve, their reserves are, you know, they don't have much of the way reserves either. And they are, Credit rating, I presume, would be um, equally Zed. as problematic. Yeah, but yeah, but it, and that's that's one of the issues that they're going to face if they're trying to suddenly step back into the market to procure fertilizer when we're in an incredibly precarious and tight market already. If you're a supplier of fertilizer, you're going to go where you're you're going to you know you're going to get paid and, and you're going to um, you have that kind of certainty and and that's something that's um, certainly going to be a bit of a disadvantage for Sri Lanka again unless the right project uh, or not the pro not project the right trade financing mm. can be secured and and again I'd, you know there's been headlines over this past week around them working with the the World Bank to secure some of that financing so but it really is interesting though like that whole thing of like organics is fine like it's a it's it's a decision that farmers should make on their own decisions. Like in the in the West, like in the developed world, you can obviously get a premium for for being organic and and whatnot, and you make that decision. But it but it is sort of one of those things where organics, even if done properly, is still the peer reviewed literature shows that there's still a yield gap. So even if it had been done not overnight and gradually brought in, it would still have led to poorer production within the country and not necessarily a price premium based on the organics but more based on lack of supply so it just seems to me again it's another example of where you know government should probably just stay out of markets because just let the market decide what it wants to do so a bit of an odd one yeah you're you're right and again you know fertilizer and other chemical inputs you know it, it is a, a scary thing for the general consumer to to think about. Um, I would but say it's, that but, but it's sc have... scary for the consumer when you look at the supermarket and the price is up 40, yes. 50% on, on bread or, or whatever it may be. 
Yeah, indeed. And uh, you know, I, I would say that if we look at kind of longer term fertilizer trends, if we look at if you look at a developed market such as the US and even Australia, you know, fertilizer application rates haven't changed all that much over the last 20 to 30 years. But yields have increased dramatically. The amount of productivity per unit of fertilizer applied is growing, 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 and, and farmers are increasingly conscious of how to best use their fertilizers. Fertilizer technology is does change. It includes other macronutrients and solar release technologies and, and things like that to, to make its use more efficient uh, and less uh, kind of less, you know, there's a big focus on less runoff and timing more, of applications but, but and things like more, that. More targeted as well, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So it's more efficient. Uh, yeah, so there, there are there are big improvements that have been made uh, over a long period of time, and th those improvements will continue to happen. And some of those improvements may well be sped up by this current higher price in environment that we're in. There may be some mm. some technologies that can you know, benefit from from where we are right now. We're we're yet to kind of see that just yet, but now's the time for these kind of novel technologies to, to really make hay while the, the sun shines. So you don't think the world's going to go organic anytime soon though? I don't think so. That's a shame because we still got manure sitting there, which <laughs> spe speaking of which though, we haven't, we haven't spoken about manure. We, 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 every podcast we talk about manure uh, that we've done with you, Chris, and I notice the rest of the world's picking up on it. Reuters had a story on manure last week. So, so some people, some people, some people would say that there's a lot of manure spoken on all of our podcasts, Andrew. <laughs> so, but 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 it's true though. Look, look at the news though, Matt. There's Reuters picked up on it. I think the Times picked up on it. Uh, Bloomberg picked up on it. You actually did a video for Bloomberg on manure. <laughs> um, it's the way of the future. Have, have you guys had many, many more requests for commentary on, on manure and compost or are you staying clear? Uh, no, no more than usual, uh, unfortunately for you, Andrew. But um, yeah, it, it's again, it's a, there's interesting concepts there with recycling and, and manure and, and things like that. But again, you know, we see it being a relatively small part of the overall crop nutrition picture. Yet just now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, what was I going to say? I had something else I was going to say there. I forgot it. Oh, yeah, right. So so at the moment, we're going to be in a high price environment, yeah? For, for, for probably quite some time. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's going to be less usage? Is there, is there a bit of demand destruction happening? Are farmers using less? <clears throat> there is, yeah. So it, very timely. I've literally just been writing up an, an insight on this one, which uh, which crew clients will have access to over the next next week or so. There's a plug. Uh, there's but, a plug. This podcast yes, is brought to you by CRU. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make sure you get out to CRU for all your fertilizer needs and uh, yeah. and uh, decisions around the market. Indeed, I'm. I'm I think. Or, I'm or, or just listen to this podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I. We are, we are projecting declines in fertiliser demand over 2022 and 2023. Uh, again, if we, if we build it up, you know, crop prices are sky high right now, you know, in many cases at a, at a record high. The incentive should be there for farmers to be you know, applying more fertiliser, planting more hectares. Um, but the liquidity crunch, which many farmers are facing, these higher input costs, for fertilizer and chemical and, and fuel are all impacting the, the appetite for, for fertilizer right now. And when we look at our farm margins, we see that farmers can even, if they were to apply their normal fertilizer application rates, they would still make some very good margins, but they're, that's assuming normal rainfall and, and yeah, uh, so, things so like that. So there's, they're incorporating a lot more risk and many cannot incorporate that risk because of the uh, aforementioned liquidity crunch and many are just unwilling to, to take that on. So we are going to see a cutback in demand and that cutback is going to be varied based on, you know, 
the supply sources in which the the, the fertilizer usually comes from. There's there's going to be many instances in, in many countries where you know they they aren't going to get their usual supply from Belarus or from China and they're not going to be able to secure the right fertilizer in time. So we are yeah seeing that happening in a country like Brazil, which is really key for the fertilizer market, we do see demand declining around 10% year on year. Which is significant. Um, that's significant. So, yeah, and that's that's due so, to... So, so 10%, yeah, sorry to, to take you off track, but 10%, mm. would that, what would that be equivalent of Australia's overall requirements? Australia would be about 10% of Brazil, would it? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest. But it'll be probably significant. Not, probably not too far off, yeah, probably yeah. not too far off. Um, yeah, it's Brazil is one of the largest fertilizer markets out there. Now, with Brazil, it's really interesting what we're what we are seeing there, and you know, our, our modeling and the conversations that we have with with various different people in that market is that they're going to slow down their area expansions this year, so they're not going to be planting anywhere near as much no, additional soybean. Less rainforest getting cut down, and well, less less uh, pasture land being converted into soybeans is what that people will point out to you but so we're seeing that so down that's that's that you know when they do open up that land they are dumping fertilizer on it because it's it's very it's so nutrient deficient it's very very unproductive so they they've essentially got two to three times the fertilizer application rates when they're opening that land up so they're going to pull back from opening as much up this year uh and pull back on their other application so rates just so just to be maintenance rather than expansion yeah, yeah. And they're, and they're not to, again, some of the big farming groups that we've spoken with think they can cut back their phosphate and potash applications around 10%, and they don't think they're going to have too much of a yield penalty from doing so. Uh, nitrogen is, is the more precarious one. Um, you, know, you, you need nitrogen to keep your crop green. Uh, there is less of a kind of demand response to higher prices when it comes to, to nitrogen. So we don't see nitrogen demand falling anywhere near as much as what we do for, for potash and, and phosphate. So I was going to start, just say on that kind of lower demand picture as well, what you're saying about the cost pressures, you know, forcing the lower demand, but how much of the, the really dry conditions in North America are playing out as well in terms of encouraging less demand? I know through the, through the kind of drought in New South Wales, we saw a couple of years back, there was kind of, you know, already nitrogen in the ground and they had, hadn't much of a crop that season. So there wasn't much demand the following year. Um, is that the same kind of situation playing out in parts of North America? Well, Canada had a pretty brutal year last year. and um, We don't see their demand being hit too hard, to be honest, from, from the different uh, observations that were made from, again, the people that we speak with in that market. You know, their demand this year has, has been relatively healthy. Um, so yeah, we don't see that having too much of an impact at, at this stage. Um, again, it, it's having some, these higher input prices are having some influence on the, the crop selection. Uh, so you, you see the USDA come out and say that crop area is going to be less this year and soybean area more, uh, despite the kind of price ratio suggesting that it probably should be more corn. Uh, again, they make those farmers that they're surveying and making that decision based on these uh, very high input costs. In, ter in terms of the uh, that, that that demand uh, destruction, yeah, or demand reduction, I guess probably not destructions, probably a bit too, bit over the top. Demand reduction is it? Are you seeing it? Obviously, every. All farming areas use fertilizer, yeah, generally, apart from Sri Lanka. Uh, but do you do you find that it's like developed countries are more likely to maintain their levels, and developing countries are less likely to to maintain them, or is it just pretty much even across the board? No, there is more sensitivity when it comes to your developing countries. We see more of a, a demand risk uh, there, so. Again, it's coming from a much smaller base, but uh, there's a lot of concern around fertilizer use in Africa for these next mm. couple of years, let's say. So there's there's lots of uh, scrutiny on, on that right now, lots of analysis being done on that right now. Uh, Southeast Asia, where 
which is a really interesting one because we look at wheat prices, corn, corn prices, soybean prices, they're all sky rice. high. Rice prices are not. Um, and so that affordability squeeze is, is very prevalent there. So we see a bit more risk in, in Southeast Asia around some of that demand destruction. Because I read somewhere that there's, and, and this, I guess this, you guys are in the press all the time about fertilizer because you're one of the, uh, the leading fertilizer analysts out there, yeah? And obviously it's it's of interest at the moment and it seems to be that it's probably before it was all agricultural news and commodity news, but now it's mainstream journalists who are getting interested in fertilizer, which is always scary. But I read an article the other day about how 500 million people were going to struggle because of rice and fertilizer. And, and we're hearing a lot about the conflation of it between food security and fertilizer. Do you think we're actually facing food security issues off the back of fertilizer? Or I had the view that it would take a while for the fertilizer reduction to actually impact yields dra- dramatically. Yeah, it's we don't have a conclusive answer to that yet. We are doing some work to, to try and come up with something that's a bit more robust. Um, so I don't have a, a really good answer for, for that one right now. And I want to be really clear and, and careful about that. I don't want to, what, what, one thing that we don't want to do as analysts is create unnecessary alarm. Yeah. Now, if we, we kind of lay the facts down, we look at global stocks to use ratios for corn and soybeans and, and wheat, it's, it's super tight. And again, if we look at the incentive that's out there for farmers to be planting more and optimising their yields, it's there. Are they going to be able to do that? Probably not because of these, again, that aforementioned liquidity crunch and these high input prices. So it's it's worrying and that's kind of where I would leave leave it at. It. It's, it's a concern and there's lots of different... Uh, uh, I guess what's the right word here? Lots of different programs that are being set up to try and support farmers in various different countries to to get through this, uh, and we do think that we will ultimately get through it. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, a tough couple of years. What, what about China? Like we're coming close to that time. Was it May or June that they were supposed to be opening up exports again? Like yeah. I, I know there's been a little bit of exports, but in terms of that wholesale opening up of China, is that still going to happen or? It seems less likely that you're going to have a complete removal of those export barriers. Um, again, China is first and foremost concerned about its own uh, domestic population and domestic farmers and they, want, they don't want their domestic fertiliser prices to reach these global levels. That's yeah. that's what the government is, is watching right now. Those domestic prices are already at essentially record highs. So they don't want it to get any higher and they know that there's a big disparity between their prices and international prices. And so the concern from the government right now is oh, if we lower these barriers, then what's to stop our domestic prices getting to those international levels? So we don't... We do see China returning with more volumes to the market in the second half of the year, but it's unlikely to be the amount that we previously anticipated uh, because of those concerns. And we don't see China completely, the, the government kind of completely loosening their, their grip on those export flows. We've seen, um, so we've spoken about, you know, obviously energy crisis for want of a better word leading through to this kind of issue with fertilizer we've seen higher input prices for things like chem and and fuel you're very careful chris to not um be too dramatic around the prospect of maybe food-based shortages or at least food inflationary environment or even a general inflationary environment and we've got some countries that are now starting to increase interest rates um, what's the chances all of this is going to lead to a kind of certainly a US kind of recession or a global recession or even indeed some kind of period of a 1970s style supply chain kind of shock to the system, you know, like, like the oil price shock we saw in 73 and 79. Is that a potential reality that could occur with all these kind of pressures, do you think? 
Yeah, it's not within uh, within our macro team here. They're not factoring in a recession into their base case yet. It's something they're getting asked uh, about a, a hell of a lot more. Um, and yeah, you look at all the different financial and just general media here and everywhere else in the world, it's all about inflation and stagflation and all the, the risks surrounding that. So yeah, it's it's an increasing risk. Again, it's, it's not being factored into our base case yet, but it's something that we're um, continuing to, to monitor very, very closely. What about super cycles? You know, <laughs> I think one of the early podcasts we did was about super cycles, probably back in early 2021, maybe, mm-hmm. or mid-2020. Okay, anyway, but when, it was during COVID and everyone was talking about super cycles and you didn't think it was a super cycle. Do you think we're in a super cycle now or do you think it's still just normal markets? I wouldn't say it's normal markets. Well, not um, normal markets, but it's... Yeah. <laughs> well, it's no, normal, in- it, but it's normal markets. Really. The market is yeah. just doing what it does. In, indeed, the market is responding to various different supply and demand signals. <clears throat> um, I mean, there have been a number of things that have completely changed in the last couple of years since, well, last 18 months since we... Uh, put that that view out that we are not so much in a in a super cycle. It, I would say that it is more likely now. We haven't really officially changed our, our view on it. We don't get asked about it anywhere near as, as much. But it's not the end yeah. term at the moment. Pardon? It's not the end term at the moment. It's not. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not the buzzword. Yeah, it's certainly not. And again, it's all about. <laughs> What the the big themes at the moment, the big macro themes are, you know, around trade, regionalization and two-tiered markets and things like that that are going to uh, evolve from, you know, this this situation which has been completely triggered by Russia's actions in in Ukraine and how, you know, essentially the, the new world order and how global financial markets and commodity markets are going to, to operate around that. And again, there's, there's going to be some and, pretty big fallout in commodities because of that. And let's, let's, let's look at it from a point of view of like Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a big thing, yeah, clearly. Mm-hmm. And that's been one of the big drivers of this sort of this quarter sort of real big push up in almost everything, yeah? Yeah. But, but let's say hypothetically uh, it ends tomorrow, yeah? And then the market will the market start correcting itself fairly quickly? Will gas prices start correcting fairly quickly? There would be some would, correction, would, but it's would, not going to be a complete total downturn. These sanctions that have been applied in Russia are not going to be easily wound down. Is uh, is everyone, are, is Europe going to reactivate you know, its complete... Reliance on Russia for its gas? Absolutely not. If all this was end to end tomorrow, there's going to be some big changes in trade relationships, no matter what happens going forward, uh, and that is, you know, ultimately going to to have an impact on commodity markets. So, yeah, again, you might see some shorter term corrections if there was to be some kind of resolution, but are you going to again see things? Uh, veering down to their more kind of historical averages unlikely for, for the next few years. Yeah, that's a that's a point. We had the podcast with John Blackburn a while back, um, Andrew, the the military Air Force fellow that was talking about fuel security of Australia and made, made the point that um, a lot of the, I guess, people in power in various countries are now not just looking at um, decisions around where they get their su- crucial supplies from for key commodities, because based on price, but also based on the reliability of the participant that's providing it, you know, so uh, a country like Russia, um, you may not want to be heavily reliant upon for key commodities coming into your country. Mix your basket, isn't it? Mm. Don't have all your eggs on in one basket, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, too right. So things are changing. So let's, let's go back to Australia for a second, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Farmers at the moment are <clears throat> in seeding, or for the majority, will be will be starting seeding in the next week. What do they do about fertilizer then? It's too late for any price falls, isn't it? 
Well, we actually, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some pretty big swings in urea markets and that may, it may be too late for the Australian season. I don't know the the flows well enough, but there have been some some pretty big swings in urea prices just in the last couple of weeks alone. And yeah, they all, but that's in the overseas market. That's in the Middle East. That is the overseas USA. market. Yeah. But it, so so if, a, if an importer is buying a cargo or two now, they will get that for, you know, one, 150 US dollars cheaper than what they would have a few weeks ago. Yeah. It makes a pretty big difference. Like we, it's, it's bizarre. We are seeing these kind of uh, 40, 50, $60 price swings in these nitrogen markets each week. And it's just treated as normal now. Which if we saw if we saw that kind of swing a couple of years ago, within a year we would have got excited. So, but it's it's, it's, it's quite interesting because I was actually saying the same thing about wheat. Yeah, so like you, you sort of look at the market every day and like, oh, ten dollar fall, next day, twenty dollar rise. Whereas normally yeah. you'd be like, wow, twenty dollar yeah. rise, but now it's ah, pff, not that interesting. Yeah. we've just kind of become attuned to this this volatility. Um, but it it, it does ultimately mean and again you know we've, we've talked about this many times in this podcast what we're trying to do is create some transparency around what's going on in these markets and i think it is important to highlight that you know there have been some falls over the last couple of weeks whether that just swings back higher again over the next couple of weeks remains to be seen and there is a, a risk that could happen when some of the uh, key markets return for demand such as such as india or if europe shuts down all of its capacity again because their gas prices swing higher. That volatility is is here to stay here for to stay, yeah, yeah. Like, like next six to 12 months at the very, very least. So, But, yeah, there, there, there may still be, for those kind of late season urea applications, there, there could potentially be some benefit there for those Australian farmers. And that's, still that's, be paying a lot for it, but it's maybe not quite as much. And that's the thing, even $150 fall is still high prices. But... Exactly. And, and that's and that's the reality, though, is that whilst the in our view, whilst the prices have fallen overseas, it's unlikely to be reflected anytime soon in Australia. It would take it, would it take does a while, take a while for, it takes a while for it to flow through. But I guess I guess I guess the next question is like I'll, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when we were we were we were talking about urea and DAP in around more like the five hundred Aussie dollars a ton mark. Now it's closer to fifteen hundred dollars a ton. And I remember a lot. There was a lot of people talking about, well, maybe we should be storing it and keeping, you know, a year's supply or a two-year supply. I'm actually hearing the same thing now from some farmers. Maybe we should be buying urea for next year, uh, which I guess is it's a risky one because we're potentially a peak, and then buying it and storing it, you've got all sorts of issues with that. Uh, what is the chances? Like, what are we? Let's 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 say that urea is fifteen hundred dollars a ton in Australia, for argument's sake. Here, just a hypothetical number that plucked out the air just now. What is the chances of it? Let's, let's forget about this season. This season's done. But next season, what's the chances of major upside to fertilizer prices? What what's the chances of a two thousand dollars a ton? It's hypothetical speaking, so I'm not. Nobody's going to hold yeah. you to it. Um, based on our, our forecasts and, and where we see things going, I would say that there's more likeliness of paying $1,000 a ton rather than $2,000 a ton. Just based on, again, we, we are very much in a, we've been in a hot market, how we see the supply and demand fundamentals playing out, how we see some of these feedstock uh, costs playing out. You know, our, our view is that we will see lower prices in 2023 compared to 2022. Yep. But what would it take to get to 2000? It's really hard to sort of see. There's no sort of factors you can see that would push it to that sort of level. Again, it would be very much dependent. How, I think how, the number one thing to be looking at there is what happens with those European gas prices and, and gas supply there. That is such an important factor in this market right now and has such a huge bearing on global S&Ds, that, that, that's the one for to be watching out for. If you see those European gas prices get up to $40, $50 an MMBTU again, right now they're around kind of the low 30s, 
in the US, they're around kind of six to seven dollars in MMBTU. Um, you know, if you see them rocket higher again and you see those European uh, nitrogen producers pulling back on their production, that's when you again get closer to those 2000 type levels. So that's what I'd be watching out for. But it takes a lot to get that there. There'll be a lot more. If those, if, if gas prices get to that sort of level, there'll be a lot more issues around the world than just fertilizer. And it, but in terms of so so basically there's no need to be panicking and buying a shed load of uh urea and sticking it and storing it for the next 12 months based on our current projections no and again that's that's the buying behavior that we see around the world at the moment is we don't want to be holding inventory at these incredibly high prices we probably would have said exactly the same thing 12 months ago, <laughs> but the, the world has completely and utterly changed um, since then. But again, the most most of the buyers that we speak with are, are very much kind of hand to mouth. They're, they're waiting for, they're, they're not expecting prices to correct ridiculously lower again, getting to those kind of mid-cycle averages, but they're, they're not going to be buying huge levels and, and storing it away. We shall see. We shall see. It's a, it's a crazy world we live in. And it is. It is. We'll have to see what happens over the next year or so. Just need to get Putin to uh, stop being crazy. And that will fix things up. Yeah, so, it's yeah. an optimistic scenario. But let's see. But yeah, I think that's probably. And just to go back to it, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned that would be some good analysis to look at, you know, real and nominal pricing for urea back to the 70s. And I know some bloke, a uh, really sort of clever bloke uh, from Scotland, uh, he did a piece uh, back in October on that, actually. And I'll have to update it, but it was probably uh, looking at it, yeah, in real real terms, it was about 1,600 US dollars a tonne back in 73. Is in, in current day dollars? In current day dollars. Mm-hmm. That's so, that's for urea. For urea, yeah. Yeah. And and DAP about eighteen hundred. Yeah. So we still got to get to those levels. So it's just not too bad actually. Mm-hmm. Like when you think about it that way, prices are actually not are, are okay. Mm. That's a, <laughs> so a typical typical Scottish advice. It could always get worse. It could always get worse. <laughs> <laughs> we got another we got another sort of two hundred three hundred dollars a ton to go. So could get worse. Yeah, we don't we don't think we're going to quite get to, to those uh, 70s levels as you've you've quoted there, Andrew. But um, yeah, it's still still pretty darn expensive at the moment, and it is certainly uh, eating into the the bottom line of uh, many farmer budgets. So I guess the the, the key takeaways that I've got from this is to, for farmers is one. Hopefully prices fall next year. Fingers crossed, touch wood. Uh, minimize your use. Be more efficient. Variable rate applications and all that kind of stuff. B, use manure whenever possible. <laughs> um, and that's about it really, isn't it? And, and governments don't get involved too much. And um, don't play sport when you're getting too old for uh, <laughs> the, uh, the action. It's the other thing to take out of it. Maybe, 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 like, as you're in New York, maybe you can go to like the park because they do those, they have those parks for all the chess boards and stuff out, yeah. Tai Chi in Central Park, maybe that, well, yeah. you, can, you can't do that anymore with your knee. Um, maybe you got some sort of wheelchair Tai Chi or something. So. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of recreational activities to partake in here that I'll have to take up to, yeah, uh, and consider my old age of 34. Uh, more seriously next time around. You're probably just fortunate that you can still use the <coughs> CRU limousine to get around um, New, York, <laughs> New York rather than uh, having to fight along the subway system, Chris. Yeah, not quite, not quite. Um, but it's uh, New York's a good walking town, so I, I use the old Foot Falcon to, to get around most places. I think my uh, I was probably 33 or 34 when I broke my arm. And that's when I realised I was getting too old for sports. So, so there you go. Maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's that age. Your, your bones are getting brittle. You, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe it's because you're not drinking enough milk. 
Maybe, maybe. I'm from a dairy farm, so I pride myself on, on having a glass every night. But um, yeah. But it's not good Australian milk, though. It's, it's certainly not. American milk. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, I think we've covered off all the big topics in, in fertilizer. And uh, informative as ever. And uh, hopefully people will get a bit of insight into what is actually happening out there. Well, we managed to get a, a, an advertorial in for CIU midway through there. If people picked it up, it was a very, very kind of disguise attempt at letting people know about the great <laughs> offering that they have there. So um, that was good to have our first kind of sponsored oh, podcast. Well, well, we don't do sponsored podcasts. We, 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 and as, as we said, Matt, we have been approached for sponsors and mm. we are still holding fast on our view of podcast should be free of sponsors because otherwise you can't make fun of the people that are on it. Well, um, we're holding to, out, holding out for someone to pay us $5 for the podcast rather than 250 that we've been offered. So, And as an avid listener of you guys, I do appreciate your uh, complete and utter independence and, uh, and all of that. Very, very unique. So I, We'll what did you make of the, the um, while you're giving us compliments, what did you make of the, when we do just the two of us with the new lead in music, were you, were you impressed by that? Uh, you caught me out there because I haven't actually listened ah. to it. Oh, I see. Ah. See, we caught you out. <laughs> <laughs> see. Bloody, trying, well, look, try, trying to blow smoke up us yeah. and then you've just been caught out. You know. I look forward to, uh, I look forward to hearing the new intro music. Uh, only when it's just Andrew and I. So this one will be the traditional yeah. hokey um, music. Yeah, because we get we got a bit of an uproar when we people didn't like the hokey music at the start. Now they got used to it, and when we changed it to our just you know a couple of guys just singing an intro because we didn't want to pay for the rights to um, Bill Withers just the two of us song. Um, it was a bit of a backlash, Andrew. <laughs> it was a big backlash. You know, you, you can't keep everyone happy. That's the problem. Uh, I did, we did get some did get some compliments. Somebody said. I wasn't sure if I'd clicked on the right podcast because it was some <laughs> mad people. But but no, we will keep doing it. And uh, thanks for coming along, Chris. And uh, my mouse has just run out of battery. Uh, thanks for coming along and uh, to, to Australia's most professional agricultural podcast. Pleasure, guys. <laughs> thanks, 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 Chris. Uh, hopefully you're on the mend quickly and um, see when you got nothing on, not even sure. a brace. Ciao for now. <laughs>